This is Coping with Dystopia from Dare to Be Grey. This is the show about finding ways to flip the script on our dark times. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and today we're coping with trolling. Trolling correlates with what they call the dark tetrad of personality traits. So it's psychopathy, Machiavellianism, narcissism, and sadism. But sadism is the strongest link, and that means that trolls want to hurt and upset you, and they take pleasure in it. So that's Ginger Gorman. She's an Australian investigative journalist and the author of Troll Hunting. Ginger went deep into the dark world of online trolls, predator trolls to be specific. She's had her own horrific experience with trolls and discovered that online has real world consequences. A lot more from Ginger coming up when we hear her story and get her five pieces of practical advice you can use to help you cope with trolling. But first, joining me are Hannah Richter and Jordi Nienhaus from Dare to be Grey with a little context for today's show. Hello, Jordi and Hannah. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan. Thanks for having us. So, you know, the reason why we, we have you guys on at the beginning of this show, of course, is to let people understand just what we're dealing with, just how big this, this problem is. So what exactly is trolling. And to be sure, we're talking about predator trolling. So it's not about rickrolling people, right? <laughs> Have you ever been well, rickrolled? Have you ever been rickrolled? Absolutely. <laughs> I, maybe I'm also on the other hand, on the other side of rickrolling. I, I do like to rickroll people. And yeah. I don't think we should call this trolling. Yeah. <laughs> um, because of course, you know, trolling from, from our context and the context we will be discussing today is, is more about those vile little internet creatures who practice this behavior with a passion. And they're actively seeking out to provoke, upset, and harm people through hate speech, through violent messages, death threats. Hannah? Yeah, and something that it's it's really key to think is that it's, it's obviously always on the internet. And we've had such a rise in internet usage um, in, in the past few years, especially during COVID. So there's become much more of an ease in becoming a sort of a, a keyboard warrior um, and, and hiding behind your keyboard and, and just being a troll online without people realizing who you or knowing who you actually are. So my question to the both of you is just how big is this problem actually? Pretty big, I'm afraid. We, we dug up some research for you. And uh, the Pew Research Center said that, well, at least 66% of the internet users who have experienced online harassment said that it's happened on social media, so in public spaces online. That's not to say that 66% of the population did encounter trolling themselves or were attacked by trolling themselves, but figures do range between the 30 and 40% of people who have actively been attacked online. So that's pretty huge. And can we define what we mean by attack? So that that's sort of the any type of harassment, online harassment, um, and hate speech, negative um, messages, um, and just really hateful hateful comments through a number of different ways. That where it could be through sexism, through racism, um, a lot of misogyny happens, um, and it, it can really cause harm and distress 
towards the the victims of it as well. So this is like what Ginger said and is going to say again later on when when we get into the interview with her proper is the fact that this virtual world has actual real world consequences, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So do do men and women get trolled in the same way? Probably so not, right? <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. Absolutely not. And what I mentioned just before about uh, sexism and racism, well, those are two two different things that happen with racism towards men and then a lot of sexism towards women. And and quite a lot of the time, it, it does seem that a lot of the trolling happens more towards women. And that's not to say it doesn't happen towards men at all. It does. Um, but this is this is a real issue and it's it's something to um to look at more in depth i think that fact that there is such a difference between the two and you still have women trolls although more that we would hear about would be the the male trolls trolling trolling women who are um and all the misogyny towards women um and it can really really lead to so many issues and and such as i said before harm and distress that it's not just that it's in some severe cases it's it's even causing suicide and victims of cyberbullying are actually 1.9 times more likely to commit suicide and there's been so many talks of it in in the news in in recent years i know one big one that i that i heard about in the uk where i'm from was caroline flack she committed suicide after being a victim of cyberbullying and trolling online and she was a, a famous TV presenter. It becomes such an issue and it's so many things that you don't realize because it's online that leads to offline harm and offline consequences. So I think a lot of people understand that trolling is a really big problem, particularly in North America, because that's the kind of stuff that we see all the time in the media, right? I mean, if there's going to be a story about it, it's for most cases a North American story. But what about here in Europe, right here in Europe? Just how big of a problem is it here? We know that big platforms, they tend to invest more in the English language. So when it comes to moderation, um, taking down nasty comments online, they do invest more in what's happening in North America. And that does translate to a different context here in Europe. They did some research on young kids on the internet. And 36.5% of the kids in Europe between the age 12 and 17 have been bullied online, mainly on Instagram. 40% of the bullying happened on Instagram. So it shows that platforms might not be doing enough to take all these messages down, especially in languages that are not spoken widely. In, in fact, I can tell you that because I have a, a teenage boy who goes to a high school here, and one of the kids in his class is actually leaving the school entirely because of the level of cyberbullying that was happening to him on the WhatsApp group in their classroom, and that the school really couldn't do anything about it. They, they responded very poorly. So it seems like the people who are in charge and the authorities are a little bit baffled as to what to do about this, because the kid, of course, was sitting at home since Christmas. That's such an awful thing to hear, Jonathan. And I think it happens so often. And the problem is people don't know how to properly deal with it. And in schools, especially when they're dealing with children who spend so much of their time on social media and have actually grown up with it now from a very young age, you know, it's it's difficult and they need to be taught how to deal with it properly. We need to have more awareness about it we need to have more of an understanding and it shouldn't just be the teachers that are being taught about this it should also be the children understanding how to deal with this themselves when this happens on social media it's like people need training right they need to know what to do 
Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think what we see happening is that people try to use offline approaches for this online landscape. But online is so different. It's constantly available. It's all around you and it, you can't ignore it, right? If there's something happening like on a, on a square or in a classroom, you can just walk away. How do you walk away online? Exactly. And, and in fact, that's one of the things that Ginger Gorman, who you're going to hear from in just a few minutes from now, everybody, uh, talked about the fact when she first started experiencing very extreme levels of of trolling uh, where it got dangerous. Of course, she it was so bad that she did what you would do if you got threatened with your life. She went to the police and the police were like, you should stay off the internet. That was their reaction. But who can stay off the internet and function in society? You can't, right? You simply can't. So we need more ways of dealing with that. And in fact, uh, at the very end of my interview with uh, Ginger Gorman, at the end of every interview here on Coping with Dystopia, we give you five practical ways to cope with this particular aspect of our dystopic times. So with your permission, Hannah and Jordy, why don't we move on now to my interview with Ginger Gorman, an investigative journalist in Australia, and the amazing story of what's behind what became her book, Troll Hunting. So here's my interview with Ginger Gorman. I worked for Australia's national broadcaster, which is called the ABC, nothing to do with the US ABC. And I did a series of stories about the human rights of people who are LGBTIQ+. And they were broadcast on the radio and they were published, very importantly, for this story online. And that was in 2010. One of those stories was about two gay men, Mark Newton and Peter Truong, who told me they had had this child via surrogacy in Russia this little boy. And so I just did this story, a feature story about their lives and about this little boy and they seem like a lovely family. And then three years later I was on maternity leave with my second baby and those two men were arrested in the United States for horrendous pedophilic crimes against their little boy. And they had essentially purchased him from his Russian mother for 8,000 US dollars. He was not their biological child at all. And he had been shared with pedophiles around the globe. One of those men was an Australian citizen and one of them was a US citizen. And, in fact, by that stage, international police had been tracking these guys for a long time that had trouble pinning them down. But when they were inter overseas in the US, the police swooped on their house in Cairns in Australia and found all the evidence and charged them. And they're now in jail in Indianapolis for those crimes, one of them for 30 years and one of them for 40 years. You interviewed them as an example of two of, of two gay men adopting a child and forming a, a family right and it was it was a flattering portrait of a of a lovely family right and that of course was online and online is forever and then they got arrested you know there's so many tragic parts of this story Jonathan it's really hard for me to even think about that child even now because I spent a lot of time with him and I'm a mum you know and I still think about him every day like all the time what is has happened to him I know that he's safe but I don't know much more than that because he's in witness protection essentially but what happened to me in the context of this story that we're telling is that that story because it was online 
became the target of very conservative elements in the United States, particularly one guy called Robert Stacey McCain. He is a very conservative journalist. He had a huge following of thousands and thousands of people and he was inciting his followers to shame me and what he was saying was you know I should pay for what I was done I had done and I was somehow morally culpable for what had happened to this child of course that's not where it stopped I just got absolutely inundated by cyber hate and so this was a time in the states Predator trolling was already really common, but in Australia it wasn't. We didn't really know what it was. And so to have this hatred flooding in on this immense scale when I was at home with this quite new baby is just kind of indescribable. And as I said, I'm not a techie person, so my tweets were geolocated. So you could actually see when I tweeted where my house was on Google Maps and My then husband, we've since separated, he found a photo of our family on a fascist website. And like you, Jonathan, I'm from a Jewish background. My family were Holocaust survivors. So there's all this like anti-Semitic hatred about wanting me dead. And then, you know, with this photo, this beautiful photo that I had taken for our holiday card, I'm pregnant with my baby and my then husband had a two-year-old on his shoulders and there's all this stuff. And at the same time, we got this death threat, you know, saying your life is over. And because we realised our house was geolocated, I really did sit there and think, like I have this visceral memory of lying in bed late at night, like 11 o'clock in a cold sweat with my heart racing and I could hear my little babies asleep in the next room breathing And just thinking, did I just put their lives in danger because of my job as a journalist? Like, what have I actually done here? And nobody could tell me. Like, I rang the police and they said, which they always say to victims universally around the world, like, stay off the internet, love. Which is ludicrous because actually the United Nations has recognized internet access as a human right. Like who can actually stay off the internet and live their lives? It's not possible to survive economically, socially, anything. And, you know, my boss, I remember my boss at the Australian Broadcaster at that time, I get so angry, like I get want to combust with rage when I think about this because I rang him and he said to me, do you want to call the employee assistance program? Like, do you want to speak to a psychologist? And I was thinking, no, you fuckwit. Like, I need to know, is someone going to kill my children? I don't need a psychologist. And so that was really where it started. Well, was there a moment when you thought to yourself, I got to move. I got to change my name. I got to, I mean. I just didn't actually know what to do. And it's very weird when you ring up the people, you call the people that you think should be able to help you and no one has an answer for you. No one can actually say, here's what you need to do. And I knew that like staying off the internet, if you're a journalist, like that's not a thing. You can't stay off the internet, you know? So yeah, I did think about all those things. And I, what I wanted to know is like, what is the likelihood of someone actually turning up to my house? And that was really hard to decipher. I don't think there's still an answer to that, except that people do get killed that way. So, so, so when was the moment when it sort of calmed down where you thought to yourself, okay, maybe this is all calming down now and I can get back to life as normal? That never really happened. So I did 
become less afraid. So Jonathan, you know me and you know that I am tough and I'm very much like a bull in a china shop. So once I had sat with it for 18 months, I still was getting trolling, but I just was less afraid. And I started to be angry. And then also what happened was around the world, I was seeing particularly female journalists, particularly female politicians being attacked in these similar kinds of ways, you know, rape threats, death threats, beheaded women in their inboxes, just such terrifying things happening to them to shut them up. And so I started then to get angry and say, you know, who are these guys and why would they do this? Why would you send someone you don't know a death threat? And I wanted to know what they were doing. Stop, stop. (laughs) So this is where we cross the line between, uh, I think, the behavior uh, most people who'd be listening to this can understand, and then moving on to the behavior where they think to yourself, she did what? <laughs> so yeah, you know, so when was, I, let I me know. just stop you there. Let me just stop you there, Ginger. So when was the moment when you thought to yourself, I was scared for my, for my life, but you know what? I'm more curious now than I am frightened. So I'm going to investigate. I'm going to find out who these people are. So when did that moment happen? You know, I mean, this is the other thing. If I'm really, really deeply honest with you, I am also one of those people that when people think it can't be done, I want to do it more. And people thought, you know, I said to one of my editors, I want to write about this. And she was very supportive, but she said, how the hell are you going to find these guys? And then to me, that's like the red rag to the bull. I said, I'm going to find them. And so the crazy thing about it was it actually was so easy to find them. I wrote these these tweets and then suddenly all these people started saying, talk to this person, talk to that person. But I, like I said, I did not understand what I was getting into. I thought, well, what like, did that tweet say? What exactly did that tweet say? I want to talk to severe and committed trolls or something along those lines. I didn't yet have the term predator troll because that, that only came to me after a lot of research and a lot later. But people understood what I meant. And immediately, They started, these guys started wanting to talk to me. And this is so fascinating. Like if we jump years down the track, it took me a long time to understand this because first of all, you know, I'm white, I'm left wing, I'm a feminist. At that stage, I was in a mixed race marriage. I'm I'm Jewish. I'm pretty much every single thing these guys hate. Like if this was a dating app, I am their hate match. I'm everything. You know, so I thought, they wouldn't want to speak to me and this would be a hard sell. You know, sometimes as journalists, we're trying to get people to talk to us that don't want to talk to us. This was not how this went down. And it took me a long time to understand this because these guys feel marginalised. The shorthand for these guys is often very, very bright, often self-educated, but they feel left behind and they feel on the outer and these behaviours that they're doing are a way to get back at the world, you know, so they feel like no one is listening. They're your kind of classic disaffected Trump supporter for want of a better shorthand. They come from very damaged upbringings, most of them, very violent, very neglected upbringings and this is 
a behavior that they do in groups and that they're proud of. And so, yeah, this was really hard to understand, but they felt like I was going to hear them. And the more contact they had with me, the more they felt that. So they talked and they talked and they never shut up. Like it was amazing when I first started contacting them, then, you know, they would be on the apps, all these encrypted apps that I had to download to talk to them, bing, 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 you know, to an insane level. Ginger developed relationships with some of these trolls. They all had various justifications for trolling, and not all of them were right-wing activists. But Ginger spent a lot of time with one troll in particular. His name was Mark, and Mark was dangerous. For example, I know that he took part in swatting, which is a behavior that came from the gaming community, and it's where you prank the armed police into essentially kicking people's door down in the middle of the night. So the trolls would get a vendetta against somebody and then they would prank the armed police to say this person is holding someone hostage, completely fabricated. So Jonathan is holding uh, a young woman hostage. Jonathan's a paedophile. Jonathan makes pornographic material. This woman is being sexually abused so forth, like these very believable stories. And so then at 3 a.m. you get your door kicked in in the middle of the night and if your dog comes to the door barking, your dog gets shot, you might get shot. It's a really, really dangerous and terrifying behaviour. So I know that he took part in swatting. I know that he incited at least three people to suicide and was investigated by police in Australia and in the UK for that, but they never pinned it on him and various other things that he did. So when he would say to me, I'll fuck up your life. So this guy, Mark, how did you first get in contact with Mark? I first got in contact with him because of that tweet I sent. I then reached out to this massive syndicate, which I was told about by people who are my followers on Twitter. And he was Australian and I said at that point I was looking for Australian trolls because that's what my editor had wanted. Like I had no idea that these guys were in huge international syndicates and that looking for Australian is almost redundant because there's guys mostly from everywhere that are part of these syndicates. But, yeah, so he contacted me because I was in touch with that syndicate and I said I wanted an Australian and they said we'll find you one. And then he contacts you. And how does something like that open? Well, I first interviewed him for what is actually part of the Murdoch Press, an an interview for news.com.au. It's a big online platform here and it's one of the most popular news sites in Australia. And, you know, Jonathan, this is where I said, like, I was so naive. Like, I shake with terror thinking about this now, but I didn't understand how dangerous these guys were. And I literally just went to meet him in a cafe with my tape recorder. And I didn't even tell my husband or anyone where I was. I don't think it was even in my diary. So if anything had happened, you know, I wouldn't have even been findable. But I remember sitting down with him And then I'd been recording for maybe four, five, six minutes and suddenly thinking, holy hell, I did not understand what I was getting into. You know, I did not understand he could pretty much get me killed at any time. That's not who I thought I was going to meet. What did he look like? You know, that's the weird thing. He's so unremarkable to look at. He looked like a pimply 
early 20s, mid-20s guy, terrible dress sense, terrible jeans, terrible T-shirt, just like a skanky kind of boring guy. And this is the thing. other thing. You know, he had a girlfriend. He had a fairly regular job. There was absolutely nothing remarkable about him until you started talking to him. And then you, you how do you open up the conversation? So you're a troll. I mean, how did, how did, <laughs> I mean, this is the thing that's really hard to understand is that they don't have the same morality as us. So they will answer any question that you ask, no matter how uncomfortable it might be to a regular person, because in their universe, you've got to be able to take an infinite amount of shit because they give out an infinite amount of shit. It's not the same moral code. So there were some points at which I would have that terrible feeling that you have sometimes as a journalist where you think, God, I have to ask this horrendous question, and they just answer it. They don't care, and they don't care how much they incriminate themselves. They, they just don't care. The only thing is I never wanted to identify him because I would get killed if he got put in jail. Killed. Like if the police. Killed. Yeah, probably. Well, I think so because they've done it to other people. Why wouldn't they do it to me? I just didn't. Yeah. I. They're dangerous. You know, they're not okay. It's like dealing with the mafia or something, you know. But I didn't understand at that point. When was the moment during your interview with Mark when you thought to yourself, oh, this is really bad. It was about like eight minutes in when he started to talk about all those swatting behaviours and incitement to suicide and he was saying how funny it was to profile and troll people who, for example, were rape victims or people who have autism. You know, they they identify victims and they profile them and they target their weakest point, which is what Mark explained to me. So this is where I was talking about the research. So there's a really interesting piece of research which fits Mark exactly that came out of Federation University here in Australia. And what it shows is that trolls have effect, sorry, trolls don't have effective empathy. They've got cognitive empathy. So they understand how to hurt and upset you, but they don't feel for you. They don't care that they're hurting and upsetting you. And in fact, they take delight in it. And so that was one piece of research I found just fascinating and completely encapsulated Mark to a T. And the other piece of research that I have come back to again and again because it also really explained a lot for me is there was a paper that came out of the University of Manitoba and the University of British Columbia in Canada and it's called Trolls Just Want to Have Fun and it says that trolling correlates with what they call the dark tetrad of personality traits. So it's psychopathy, Machiavellianism, narcissism, and sadism. But sadism is the strongest link, and that means that trolls want to hurt and upset you and they take pleasure in it. So those two bits of research to me really explained Mark to me. What it didn't do, though, was keep me safe, and it took me so long to just disentangle myself from him. And every time I thought, that he'd gone quiet and I was so relieved, I would then hear from him again and I would get some threat or some kind of vindictive comment. So he wanted to keep me. Like how would he threaten you? Yeah, like he would just say that he was going to fuck up my life and if I didn't respond, he would take action of some kind. 
And did he, he ever? never did? He never did. Okay. No, he never did. And you know what was weird was, and this happened with quite a number of the trolls that even Mark, who I thought was psychologically untouchable. After a while, he did also get much friendlier with me. So he'd tell me about his dog and things like that, you know, and it was quite shocking in a way because I thought that he didn't have any of those emotions. But, yeah, a lot of them got gentler and kinder after just being listened to for a long time, including him, even though I in no way think he's ever going to be redeemed. I think he's beyond the pale. You know, sometimes I think on the left we have this idea that everyone can be saved and you know, if we just try hard enough, someone like him cannot. <laughs> There's no way back for him. He's a psychopath in the genuine sense of the word, and he doesn't care if he harms and kills other people. Did you, Did you ever ask him what he thinks should happen with him? I mean, he knows that he's a psychopath. He knows that he doesn't feel those emotions. And there was one point at which... He actually said that he wished he did, but he doesn't. So it's not like they're stupid and they don't understand. He knows he's defective for one of another word. He knows he should be in jail. He knows all of that stuff. He thinks he should be in jail. He 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 should be caught. Yeah, they understand that they they understand. And he said to me, I'm pretty sure that's gonna happen eventually. But that wasn't gonna make him stop. Right. So it wasn't a motivating factor for him. When's the last time you heard from him? I haven't talked to him probably for 18 months or a couple of years and I'm relieved because it was five years or more when this dance would go on and I really felt like it was never going to end and I didn't have a way out. And I knew, you know, like journalists contact me all the time. I've done so many interviews on this topic and they always want me to find a troll. And because I did a video with him that's still online, his identity is completely blurred out. But they want to talk to Mark. And I say, no way, because if you talk to him and he gets caught by the police, I'm a goner, you know, yeah. <laughs> like it's not worth it. You don't understand what a risk that is. So sometimes the media is so naive. It's amazing. I mean, I was as well going into it. But, yeah, I'm relieved, Jonathan, that he's not in contact with me. And the other person I was terrified of was Weave, who a lot of people have heard of. He's probably the world's best-known troll. And he was caught by the FBI at one point and he's now – supposedly no one can actually verify it but he's now in exile in Transnistria which is a failed part of the you know part of the failed USSR it's a part of Moldova (laughs) yeah Yeah. but like so ironic that he went on and on about freedoms and is now in this place that has no freedoms but yeah he is terrifying as well and he was so scary that I wouldn't even describe it as an interview. Like he more or less shouted anti-Semitic abuse at me the whole time despite being Jewish himself and talked about murdering children and it's just unbelievable. It's probably the darkest interaction I've ever had with anyone, that stuff. So, yeah, I don't even begin to understand how he operates. But he was also working with lots of other trolls at various points and doing real harm to people. You've, you've called for the laws to change, right? That, that in fact, what happens online needs to be seen as something that happens offline. Completely. And so 
So there's a really amazing lawyer who is in my book. His name is Josh Bornstein and he's become a friend of mine. He's a social justice lawyer for one of the big firms here. But he was also a victim of a predator troll who is a terrorist who's now in jail in the United States called Joshua Ryan Goldberg. So Joshua Bornstein, this lawyer, became very interested in these laws and how they work around the globe. And he really changed my thinking on some of this stuff. You know, I was saying speech on the internet has to be free. And he was asking me why, why, Ginger? Because (laughs) nowhere offline is speech free. You can't sexually abuse someone. You can't say things about their race in most countries. You can't threaten to take my uterus out and kill my children in the supermarket offline, why should you be able to do it online? That is not okay. You know, you can't harass people at work. And he went on and on and on explaining that, like, when your speech harms me and turns into real-life harm, that is where your freedom ends offline. And he was saying that has to be the same online. And when he explained that to me, I just thought this is so obvious. You know, civil society has to exist online. And it doesn't. And these bastards in Silicon Valley have got away with this by whatever kind of ridiculous speech they speak and lawmakers have not acted. And it's amazing that it takes something like the storming of the Capitol building where all these people die or the Christchurch massacre for people to realise, oh, okay, (laughs) this is dangerous. This is a tool that needs civil society, the frameworks around it. So... Yeah, I just find it amazing. I find it amazing. And what Josh has said, and I agree with now, is that basically we need to do what Teddy Roosevelt did in the 1800s in the US, which is break up these monopolies. He Teddy did it with the big oil companies, the railways and so forth. This is what these companies are. They're nation states. They've got user bases bigger than China and India put together. They act as if, you know, they are laws unto themselves and they're doing such grave harm to human beings. Like why are we allowing this? It's it's actually inexplicable why we have, haven't acted until now. You know, can you imagine like any other private company doing so much harm and we all sit there and go, oh, that's cool, go for it? No, we wouldn't. You know what I think people who are listening to this might experience is to a certain extent this problem, which I think if you're listening to this, you're probably were, were aware of it to a certain extent. I'm speaking to you, dear listener, but it's worse than you thought. And of course, the point of this whole show is to make you feel better by the end of the show. Absolutely. So you, the idea, of course, is to make you feel somehow not powerless. And so this is the moment for which you've, I've prepared you for, Ginger which is, of course, the five practical solutions to this extraordinarily dystopic and modern problem. Okay, so I do need to give a little caveat here, which is to say the frameworks to keep us safe are not there, right? So I don't want to be seen as blaming the victim and that it's the victim's issue to sort this out. However... Yes, with that caveat. Yeah, with that caveat, I would say there are some things that you can do either if you're experiencing online hatred or you're seeing it happen to someone else. So the first thing I would say is 
you need to have your psychological armor on. And one of the best things is you've just listened to this show, you understand what can happen to you online and you need to be aware of it. So that's really helpful to start with. And you need to understand they're trying to hurt you. And so it feels personal, but in fact it isn't. It's business to them. It's not personal. They're trying to get at you the any way they, they can. And so for me now, when I get predator trolled, I really take a mental note of how I'm going. I start asking myself, you know, am I losing productivity? Am I getting stressed? And am I dwelling on this situ- situation so much that it's affecting my mental health and my work? And why am I still thinking about this? What could I be doing instead? And sometimes a break is great. Like I just delete all the apps on my phone sometimes for a couple of weeks if it's all getting too much. I'm not saying to stay off the internet. I'm just saying watch your mental health and take steps that will support your own mental health. So number one, get your psychological armor on. Correct. That's right. And then I would say if you do understand that you are experiencing predator trolling and it's affecting your mental health and your ability to function in everyday life, reach out to your real life support network. And I can't emphasize this enough. The trolls often say, oh, it's so online. And what they mean is you get sucked into that universe to a level that you don't understand you've got an offline life. So your real friends, your real family, going for walks with them, talking things through, debrief, get that stress off your chest. So real life support network is the second one. The third one I would say is that most of these platforms have functions that are designed to assist you. So reporting, blocking, mute, those buttons are all your friends, especially mute. I love mute because you've got someone shouting at you, for example, on Twitter and you just mute them and they have no idea that they're shouting into the ether. That can be really powerful. It's not necessarily effective if you have a huge predator trolling syndicate after you, but if it's just some jerk that's really going for you and his or her mates, that is really effective. And the other thing that's related to that, which sounds minor but is actually huge, is turn off notifications at night. Do not have your devices in your bedroom. And if you do have them near your bed, make sure that those are on silent. This is major because what happens is if you're reading that stuff late at night, it's going round and round and round in your brain and it starts becoming bigger than Ben-Hur and it can really damage your health, your mental health and your physical health. Those buttons exist for a reason. Use them and it's not realistic to stay off the internet but if you can just leave it in a corner for a while, leave it in the car, go for a walk, you'll relax and you won't be imbibing those torrents of hate really late at night. So use the report slash block slash mute buttons and turn off notifications at night. You know, that's correct. That's frankly good advice for anybody, anytime, anywhere. It's Turn huge. off notifications and, uh, at night. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And I'm an insomniac. So I'll often be checking, checking, checking. And I notice when my anxiety rises, I can have a bit of anxiety sometimes. I check and I check and I check more. And these technologies are designed like that. They give you a dopamine hit every time you check your notifications. And it doesn't matter whether it's bad stuff you're getting or good stuff, you're still getting those hits. So be careful because your brain can become very addicted to that stuff. So you need to be in control of that. So I would also say if this is a sustained pattern of behavior and the threats seem to be escalating and the threats are credible threats of harm, 
you really need to start thinking about, do I need to report this to police? You know, I will say that, or I've already said that police around the world are struggling to deal with this stuff. But if you are being doxxed, for example, and all your personal details are online and you are worried of real life harm, you need to take action. Don't sit there and have those feelings. It's often a gut feeling when people contact me and say, when people contact me and say, do I report to police? And I ask them about the pattern of behavior. They seem to actually internally already know that it's a problem. It's not just, I hate you, Ginger, your article shit. It's I'm going to kill your children and it gets more and more extreme. It's that kind of stuff. The last thing I would say, which is absolutely unrecognized but is crucial in the fight to make the internet safer, is be a good bystander. And this means if you see someone that you know and respect getting cyber hate, be on their team. Amplify their voice, make their voice bigger, retweet them, repost their stuff. If you don't feel comfortable doing that, send them a message saying, hey, Jonathan, I love your work. I love what you do. Just so you know, I really value you. It means an amazing amount when the person is under attack. And the other thing is if you see someone getting huge amounts of cyber hate, the onus is always on the victim. The platforms have set it up that way and it drives me crazy. So take some of the onus off that victim and report. And The platforms deny this, but they absolutely have algorithms. When something is mass reported, they take action. They're hopeless at taking action. But if you want to get a troll taken down off Twitter or Facebook and you mass report, that's much more likely to happen. So being a good bystander, it's just like what we teach our kids in the playground. Be an upstander and stick up for other people that you see being bullied. It's huge. And You know, I often do this on a mass scale with people I see being attacked and it works. Ginger Gorman, thank you so much. And it's so great to speak with you again. And so great to see you uh, and speak to you and just hear your Brooklyn accent. I often think about it. (laughs) Oh, no. My Brooklyn accent could be a lot worse than this. Then I could talk like that. (laughs) Then I really sound like I'm from Brooklyn. You know what I'm talking about? Anyway, whatever. Whatever. Ginger, it's so great to speak to you and to talk to you again. I really appreciate it. And I'm so glad that you're out there doing stuff like this. Thank you. I know sometimes it seems questionable in terms of my sanity, but I do see I do see change, legislative change, political change, social change happening all around the world now. So get on it. My pal, Ginger Gorman, the author of Troll Hunting. You can find her book almost anywhere, including on Amazon. And there's even an audio book that's really good. I listened to it. And with me now in the studio are still Hannah Richter and Jordy Ninehouse of Dare to be Gray. Guys, what did you think of that interview? Wow, wow, such an amazing story. And so many things to unpack. Um, You know, I I really enjoy her tips. I think we all need something practical, something we can do, something like small things on how to to make the the world a bit better ourselves. Um, But man, to live through something like that, that must have been crazy. It's it's really eye-opening, you know. We we hear about these these stories online um, happening all the time, but 
the fact that she actually went and after dealing with all of this went and hunted the trolls yeah. herself i i think is remarkable i would i think if it had been me i'd run away from it and 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 not want to talk to them at all well, um, like so most people right because that's yeah. the difference as i tried to explain to her that what she did was abnormal and that's the difference between most people and the mindset of the investigative journalist is the, you know, the investigative journalist runs towards the fire, right? Mm. And not away mm. from the fire. So, yeah. So I understand that you guys actually did look into the costs of online harassment in Australia. So fill me in. So we found an interesting article by the Australia Institute, which sounds spot on. They mentioned that the cost of online harassment and cyber hate is estimated around 3.7 billion Australian dollars. And for the people who don't have their currency rates next to their computers or their iPhones, that translates to 2.5 billion euros, roughly. That's a lot of money. That's a, a, that's, a lot of money. That's money just lost in productivity, right? Health cost and lost income. Wow. It, it might also be why they are now considering the social media anti-trolling bill in Australia. Not quite sure how that is going with them. I believe that they were waiting to hear whether it will be passed or not as this was being recorded. Right. Well, that more or less brings us to the end of the show, guys. Uh, you also run, of course, the Dare to be Grey uh, website. And uh, all the people who come on to our program as guests, they leave us with five pieces of practical advice, like you just heard Ginger Gorman say. But of course, where can people who are listening to this program find that advice? Hannah, Jordy? Well, you can find everything online at www.copingwiththystopia.com. You can find the five tips from Ginger Gorman, and you can find all the other podcasts that we will be creating, um, as well as plenty of other Dare to be Grey stories. Sorry, where was that again, Jordy? Copingwiththystopia.com. Thank you, Hannah Richter and Jordy Nyenhouse. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Jonathan. And that is it for this show. Coping with Dystopia is a production of Dare to be Grey. Hate, disinformation, and polarization are on the rise. So, Dare to be Grey aims to combat these black and white worldviews that are drowning out the grey middle ground. Find out more about us and check out our inspiring stories at copingwithdystopia.com, where you can also tell us what you think of what you heard and even suggest a topic for us to talk about. This podcast is made possible with a grant from the Rights, Equality, and Citizenship Program of the European Commission. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and this is Coping with Dystopia, and we hope we helped you cope just a little better. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.